This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. A very fascinating class tonight about some things that you never hear about in the Megillah. And one of the major things which is not talked about, not much at least, is the word Tov. The word Tov. Everyone knows this word Tov. Tov means good, right? It means good. Tov is word good. And who was called good? It says, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. The Midrash says his Hebrew name was Tov. At least one of his Hebrew names. People don't know that. His Hebrew name was Tov. Why? The Torah says his mother saw him and he was Tov. Tovu. Kitovu. He was Tov. And the rabbis say that was his name, Tov. Anyway, that's one of the names of Moshe Rabbeinu. Tuvia. Other names, Tov, Tuvia. But Tov is a good, means good. It's a moral term. Tov is a moral term. And unfortunately today, people misuse this word tov. It's misused. The word good is misused. And it's misused as uh, even a bad term today. person says, you know, I had a good time last night. What were you doing? Who knows what he was, the guy was doing? But it wasn't good morally. Anyway, so good, the word good is not used as a moral term today. And we find this in the Megiddo many times. Let's, let's talk about that. Because the word good is, is featured prominently in the Megillah. The word good, tov, it's good, tov. The language tov is featured in requests made of a hashverosh seven times. The Megillah says all these requests, im ala melech tov, if it's good for you, the king. If it's good for you, the king. Seven times the Megillah says, if it's good for you, the king. If it please the king, im ala melech tov, Haman tells the hashverosh, if it's good for the king. Write down that you should destroy all the Jews. If it's good for the king. It's obviously it's not a moral term because destroy people is not good. But yeah, it's good for the king. So it's interesting how the word tov is misused in the Megillah. How many times? Seven times in the in the phraseology in the request to the king, asking the king to make good decisions. Right? What kind of good decision is that? It's good for the king. It's not a moral term. It's what's good for him. It's selfish. It's totally egocentric. Totally selfish. And we're going to see this right through the Megillah. And uh, so the, the onus is on the king. It's good for the king. The king should make good decisions. However, it's demonstrated through the Megillah. Decisions made by Hashverosh, such, such as executing his own wife, Vashti, following her refusal to attend the party, or the decision to allow Haman to wage war and destroy the Jewish people, embody a value set, seems to be a far cry from the word tov, good. Tov is meant to be a moral choice, a good choice. And unfortunately, he uses this word tov over and over again to do bad things. In a similar vein, the response is given by Hashrosh to requests made often by his ministers, Haman and Esther, Mordechai, each feature this same phraseology. Do what's good in your eyes, he tells them. Whatever's good for you. The king told Haman, you can have the money, I don't want the money. It shows how evil the Hashrosh was. Haman offers Hashrosh 10,000 talents of silver, a fortune to kill the Jews. And Hashrosh says, I don't want the money. I don't need the money. I'll give you back the money. You can do whatever you want to the people. Whatever's good in your eyes. So again, the word good is misused so many times in this Megillah. So rather than using his throne to assert a responsible leadership, 
The formulation of the verses suggests a decision-making process based on personal good and individual judgment. It's a time of individual judgment. Everyone does whatever's good for them. And probably, you know, we're living in similar times. Whatever's good for me, I'll do. Whatever's good for me, good is not a moral term anymore. So, uh, moreover, as demonstrated in the case of both Vashti and Esther, the evaluation of women is based on their good looks. The word good again. To bring the queen Vashti before the people, before the king with her crown, to show the people her beauty. The word tov again is used, beautiful. She's pretty, she's good looking. That's the word good. It's just a very, very superficial value. The word good becomes a very superficial value. So same thing applies to Esther later on. So Hashimosh's wish to display Vashti's beauty is highlighted during the, the party. Upon her refusal of the king's request and a subsequent removal from the throne, what does Ahasuerus do? He's advised to seek out Narot betulot tovot mare, young virgins who are good to look at. Again, the word good is misused again. So a critical reading of the Megillah suggests a counterintuitive understanding of the meaning of the word good. It is interesting to note that in each of these cases, the implication of the word good comes to reference good that is evaluated by the individual. What's good for you? It's not good in general. It's not a moral choice. Whatever's good for you, whatever's easy for you, whatever you like to do, it's all good. Everything's good. Everything's good. Anything you choose is good. And that's society today. That's basically the idea of society today. We haven't really come very far from this beginning of Esther. Whereas the abundant use of the word good involves the evaluation of decision-making aligned with the king, and uh, the irony is found in far cheap, far-reaching negative consequences of his actions. The error of Hashverosh's ways become very evident in the engagement of the Torah's commandment. There's a commandment in the Torah in Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 6, Pasuk 18. You will do what's right and what's good. Again, the word good in the eyes of God. That's what good. What is true goodness? Goodness is what God considers good. It's not a relative term. It's a moral imperative. And it's a, it's a 100%. It's iron cast. It's what God considers good. What is good? To do what's good in the eyes of God. That's good. That's what the Torah commands us. We should do what's good and righteous and right in the eyes of God. Unlike the trend exhibited by Ahasuerosh, whose actions and decisions seem to be personally motivated. Ramban Nachmanides, the famous Spanish rabbi, explains on that verse, the Jewish people are mandated to take wider moral principles into account while engaging with the letter of the law. And so in other words, there's a letter of the law, and then there's doing good in the eyes of God, which is a high level, much higher level. So applying, the person has to think when they do something, when they're making choices, this is good in my eyes, but it's also good in God's eyes. Is it also right to do this? You have to do what's right in God's eyes as well. Would God approve of this? Would God not approve of this? So this is something which never even entered the Hashbarosh's mind. It's what's good in my eyes, and that's what he advocated for other people. Haman, you can do whatever's good for you. Esther and Mordecai, you do what's good for you. Everyone should do what's good for them. I'll do what's good for me. There's no hard and fast rules of what is good and what is bad. Whereas the Torah is telling us, 
do what's good in the eyes of God. That's a very, very big difference. So in contrast with the Tov, the good of Shushan, the capital city of Persia, Tov takes an entirely different meaning when it talks about Mordechai. So the word good is used also by Mordechai. At the end of the Megillah, Mordechai is described. This is a beautiful line in the Megillah. Asher diber tov Mordechai spoke good about the king. What does that mean? He spoke good about the king. He saved the king's life. How? He heard the two guards of the king plotting to kill the king. And Mordechai spoke good about the king. He told Esther, go and tell the king. Save the king's life. That is true good. Saving someone's life is a true good. And that is the good of Mordechai. Mordechai does not, is not wishy-washy. His goodness is not wishy-washy. Mordechai's goodness is absolute goodness. It's the goodness what God wants. Save the king's life. As opposed to the inward focus of the personally motivated tov, which is displayed by the leadership of Shushan, of the Persians. The tov that defines Mordechai references his having stood up for the king against the corrupt society. Such an example of tov is a clear and careful evaluation of moral principles. Well, the ultimate goal, that's our goal, of creating a better society. We have to try and create a better society by being good, by doing good, by doing what's right in the eyes of God. The concluding verse of the Megillah, which defines Mordechai, look what it says about Mordechai. Doresh tov le'amor. He wanted goodness for his people. Again, the word good. Again, it's not used as a selfish term. He wants good for other people. It's a very generous term. Mordechai is doing good for the king. He's doing good, looking good for his, for his people. He speaks peace, words of peace to all his people. So I wish we could get leaders like that today. A person who looks for good for his people, for his nation, and speaking good to all people around him, making peace among the people. So whereas Tov of Shushan served individual needs, Mordechai himself is defined as a seeker of good, a good that is motivated towards bringing peace to all members of his nation. And the, the mitzvot of Purim may be enhanced through our understanding of the good, as we strive to build in our families and our communities and leave the ego away and try and really think about what's good in the eyes of God. Am I doing the right thing? Doing the wrong thing? Is this good for my nation? Is this good for my people? Is this good for my family? And that's why the community Megillah reading is so important that they all be thinking this thought about the word. Let us all t- this year think about this word good. Are we doing the right things? Are we doing good things? Are we doing what's good for us? Or are we doing what's good for others? If we're doing what's good for others, that's a sign of being unselfish and not egocentric. And that's more of a sign I'm doing the wish of God and not doing the wish of myself. And that's, that's where we should be. And that's why the community gatherings and the Megillah reading and the Purim Suda is uh, to, to increase friendship between people, to do good, to bring people together, to give Mishloch Manot, to increase friendship and Matan of your needs, to bring up the poor, raise the poor. That's good. That is true good. That is building community. That is true. That is right and that is good in the eyes of God. So that's a very, very important theme I want you to think about. This Purim is what is good. Am I doing what's right, what's good in the eyes of God, not just what I think? Uh, the second point I want to make is a very awesome, a very interesting point, which is not talked about enough. Because one of the major themes of this Megillah is feasting and partying. It's interesting. One of the major themes in the Megillah is 
feasting and partying and drinking and and uh, but what's lacking from this all this feasting is it doesn't mention the word happiness or joy and i want to just point this out to you very carefully a very beautiful idea over here there's feasting and enjoying without joy without happiness without simcha many people in life today especially uh, and they're misled by this is this idea of i want to enjoy myself but there's no simcha attached. In other words, it's joy of the body, but the soul is not happy. And the inside is not happy. They're disgusted in a sense. Many people, it's interesting, about 20% of Americans may be on some antidepressants. And that's a very important idea, this idea that, you know, what do people do to, to cheer up? Okay, you know what? You, you're looking down today. I'm gonna, let's go to the mall. Let's go cheer up. How are you going to cheer people up? Let's go to the mall. Let's go to the bar. Let's drink. Let's take some drugs. Who knows what's going on? Anything to make me feel better, but people don't realize what makes a person feel better is simcha, is joy. The true joy, not the false joy. The true joy we're going to talk about. That's a very important theme that goes through the Megillah as well. We see this idea of partying. Ahasuerus is very big on parties. There's never been, I don't know a single party that, you know, bigger than the parties that Ahasuerus threw. The Bible does not talk about any single case of partying. More than a hashros, you can't beat a hashros when it comes to parties. A hashros knows how to throw a party. Boy, uh, hard to imagine a party for 180 days. Can you imagine partying for 180 days? How can a person live through a party of 180 days? I don't know. Every day, what's on the menu? More food, more good wine, more this and more that. And it, I don't know, a person would get sick after 180 days of party. I don't know about you, but maybe people think you know, life's one big party. Yeah. And uh, 180-day party sounds good, right? Until you go through it, it's like torture. I don't know about you, but like uh, when I got married, it's seven days of partying, right? You got every night, you got to go to another party. You know, where's your down after a while? After a while, you get worn down by all these parties, and then you look forward to a regular day, you know, without a party. <laughs> so it sounds great, right? 180 days of parties. Ahasuerus was a party man. He was a party. He, he loved parties. Well, he had nothing else to do. He was a king. He had uh, shrewd courtiers running his empire of 127 provinces, and uh, he was wealthy, and he loved parties. But let's talk about his parties. So the first thing you read about when you read the Megillah in uh, chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, the first thing you meet when you read the Megillah is Ahasuerus' feast. He loves to party. The man loves to party. It's a lengthy encounter. It's a full six months of partying, 180 days of drinking wine. What else are they doing? They're admiring the riches of the glorious kingdom of the king and the honor of his grandeur and majesty. Not only did he like to party, he knew how to throw a good show. Ahasuerus knew how to throw a good show. Come and see my wealth. Come and see whatever I have. Come and see all the jewels and uh, I don't know what else they show, the tapestries and all the beautiful things I gathered from around my empire. Come and see. The glory of this Persian empire was unmatched. That even when Alexander the Great, 200 odd years, conquered the Persians, he adopted, people don't know this, he adopted the Persian lifestyle. He wanted all his generals. This was caused the, a lot of friction with his generals. The, the generals of, of Ahasuerus had to bow down to the ground and prostrate themselves to him. This was unheard of in the Greek world. And uh, this is something that 
um, he wanted, Alexander wanted to institute. Yeah, there was nearly a, a, re a rebellion against him. He wanted to issue that his generals would prostrate themselves. He saw the grandeur of the Persians. You can't even imagine the grandeur of the Persians. He adopted their dress. He adopted their throne room. He adopted their customs. He found them much more, uh, put it this way, much more enjoyable than the Greek customs. Interesting. So this was really, uh, we can't imagine such a massive empire, 127 provinces. And this great king, this so-called great king, but it was, you know, it was a lengthy encounter, food, wine, pleasure. I don't know what else I'm going to talk about it, but and uh, like a, a show, like an elaborate museum, um, all his wealth on display, all this great wealth of this empire on display. And it's for, who is this uh, party for? It's for the top echelons of the society. It was for the, the uh, ministers of all his provinces. He wanted to impress them with his greatness. And he gave them lots of wine to drink. Now, I have a theory. Why would he give his ministers lots of wine to drink? Because he wanted to loosen their tongues. He wanted to find out. He showed them all his glory. He wanted to see who's jealous of him. Who's threatening him? Who's plotting against him? What better way to make them all drunk? Show them all his glory and make them all drunk. And let's see who's jealous and who's plotting. I'm sure there were a lot of guys just taken away from that party and thrown in jail or worse. So it's a brilliant move. What a brilliant move, a master move. So they come away from that party thinking, wow, what a king. This guy's amazing king. He gave us through such a great party. You know, we see this today in some big companies. They they used to throw these lavish parties and plus it would go away and say, wow, what a great company I work for. So motivated now to work better for them. That was the way he encouraged them. But he also loosened their lips. He wanted to see who was threatening him. And I'm sure he dragged, a lot of people were dragged away from these parties. You know, I saw a video once of Saddam Hussein, his parties with his generals. And in the middle of the party, they would drag out one general and shoot him. And that's the way that he kept control in his, in his uh, domain. He kept control. He put fear of God into the, well, it wasn't fear of God, it was fear of him, into his men. They wouldn't even think of rebelling against him. Imagine, you're sitting in the party, and all of a sudden, they drag out, they come. And this happened right that recently in the Chinese, uh, what's it called? They had this, uh, their uh, massive, uh, the Communist Party had this massive meeting every year. They had a meeting to choose a new president. And again, the same president was chosen his third time there to, and they dragged out the old president. I don't know if you saw that, that video. They dragged out the old president. Everyone's watching and in humiliation, public humiliation. I'm sure that happened in Hashvarosh's party as well. Doesn't say so. The only one who lost her life was, was in that party was his wife. But, but we can imagine the story over there. Six months of feasting. Now we can understand the reason why. After the six months of feasting, what happens next? Another party. Would you believe it? Another party. This time it's a party for his capital city. All the people of the capital city had to go to the party and invited to seven-day party. So after 180 days, can you imagine? Now, the seven-day party seems very tame, but this was for the common folk of the capital city. He wanted to earn their, um, their he wanted them to be faithful to him. How do you make common people faithful? You be nice to them. So he was very nice to the common people. He invited everyone to the seven-day party. And all the Jews of Shushan went to the party, kosher, non-kosher, whatever it was. The commander said, Rabbi Shuman Bar Yochai says, that was the reason why this, this edict was against them. They went to the party, the food was not kosher. And not only that, he was using the vessels of the Beit HaMikdash in the party. 
He was using the gold and the silver vessels which they had taken from the temple, the Bukhanitsa, the Babylonians, the Persians conquered them. And he was showing his greatness by taking out the temple uh, vessels and using them for his parties. The Jews, they did, they ate non-kosher food and they used the temple, which is, imagine seeing the temple, but how could a Jew eat the food after seeing the temple vessels over there? She would cry in mourning. So that's the reason why this, that's what Rabbi Shuba Barakai says. The reason for this decree against the Jews was this. That's one of the reasons. And then what happens is the feast lasts for seven days. And parallel to this, Vashti, the queen, is making a feast for the women in the royal house belonging to the king. Apparently, this division of men and women was not based upon any great spiritual level of modest custom, but rather to give the men some peace and to engage their wives in boisterous behavior. Okay, then we learn of Vashti's refusal. And then we have... Uh, another wife is chosen for the king. He has a massive harem, all these beautiful girls from the whole kingdom. And he chooses no other than Esther, this poor Jewish girl who is taken away from her husband, Mordechai, and is brought to the king, unfortunately, which I'm sure she was mourning or every day, every night, terrible uh, disaster for her, spiritual disaster for her. And what happens is he makes to the queen and then another party, another big party. So again, we have party after party. The third feast is arranged in honor of Esther's coronation. This time it, is a, it says a great feast. And he makes, he reduces the taxes. You can imagine this is something talked about in politics still today. You're going to raise the taxes. Who's the one who said, read my lips. I'm not going to raise taxes. And then sure enough, he raised the taxes. So, so Ahasuerosh also knew how to earn people's faithfulness. I'm going to lower the taxes in honor of my new queen. And he gave gifts in accordance with the king's bounty. So Ahasuerosh obviously had many other wives and concubines. It's therefore important for the beginning to stress that Esther was not just a, one of his regular wives. She was the main queen. She was appointed as queen. She was coronated with great pomp and ceremony. And she was awarded the status of the king's first wife. She was a maid wife. And the king doesn't really care. He doesn't look into her background or national descent, where she descended from. He doesn't know. She doesn't tell anyone who she is. She doesn't tell him which people she comes from. He doesn't know. You know what? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He just goes by his looks, what's good for me, and that's it. I don't care about anything else. The feast represents an important link in the salvation of the Jews because... Esther will act on their behalf in the court. So we come to this very pivotal feast. So one, two, three feasts so far. Well, actually four if you count the feast she made, the Vashti made for the women. And what happens is, Ahasuerosh, now Haman goes to Ahasuerosh and he asks to kill the Jews. And we hear of another feast, a very small, intimate feast. And the king of Haman sat down to drink by the way, the word feast in the, in the Megillah is not about food. It's about mishteh. Mishteh means drinks. That's all it was. It was mainly drink. Everything was about drinks. That's why the mitzvah of Purim is the drink. It's, it's strange that because the rabbis say it says the miracle of Purim happened around drink. If you get a wicked guy drunk, it's good for the world. It's very Sleep of the wicked is the best for the world. Sleep of the righteous is not good for the world because they're not being mitzvah. Sleep of the wicked is the best thing in the world. Get them drunk and put them to sleep. That's the best thing you can do. 
So the king and Haman sat down to drink, and the city of Shushan, at least the Jews of Shushan, were very depressed. They heard about this decree. Here the text draws a sharp and clear contrast between the king's drinking and his actions, the king and the Haman versus the anxious people of Shushan. Hashirosh had just passed a death sentence over a whole population, and while the books of life and death are open before him, he is celebrating with wine. Just shows what an atrocious personality this man was. He's a barbarian. He's a terrible barbarian. He just sentenced an entire people, nation to death, millions of people to death, men, women, and children, just like Hitler, he marched the more of the And here he is celebrating with wine. The party here highlights the cruelty of Ahasuerus, as expressed in his complete apathy in the face of human loss. This feast is related to the central theme of the plot, Haman's decree. The next two parties are arranged by Esther. Esther is making parties to honor the king and Haman. Here we witness Haman's fall and is hanging upon the tree that he had prepared for Mordechai the Jew. This is interesting because she's also making parties. He made parties, now she is making parties. This book is all about partying. If you want to learn how to party, this is the textbook for partying. Megillat Esther is a textbook for partying. Again, we talked about last week how we have to try and reveal Megillat Esther, to reveal Esther, Esther, reveal the hidden. What is God doing in all this story? All these parties, are they part of God's plan? It seems like, yes, they were. They were part of God's plan. God even uses parties as part of his plan. But one of the major words missing in the party scene is the word joy, is the word happiness. They were partying, but joy and happiness were absent. There was no joy and no happiness. It was like when you go to a party and you're just eating and drinking. It's like a physical phenomenon. There's no joy because joy, and that's the secret. True joy comes from the soul. If the soul is not involved, if the soul is not in tune, sometimes the happiest time, day of the year can be Yom Kippur, and you're not fasting. You're, you're fasting in Yom Kippur. That can be the happiest day because a person feels, you know, I'm clean. I'm, I'm innocent now. I'm going back. I, Hashem forgave me for my sins. It was a spiritual burden on my soul that I feel relieved from. It's interesting. The joy, true joy, that's something which society is doing, making big mistakes. True joy is not a physical feast. True joy is the simcha you get around the singing and the service of Hashem in the feast itself. So that's how we should feast on Purim. Our food and our drinking is to serve Hashem by celebrating Hashem's greatness. The same thing applies to the Pesach Seder. We're going to have another feast. Months <laughs> We Jews know how to feast. Um, Pesach Seder is a good feast. And it's a mitzvah to eat. There you go. Uh, twice a year, there's a mitzvah to eat from the Torah. You've got to eat the matzah on Pesach night. You've got to eat the bread in the sukkah. And Sukkot is a mitzvah to eat. Uh, but it's a mitzvah to eat for the sake of God. And that's a true, that's a true joyous occasion because it's not just a physical occasion, it's a spiritual occasion. To make the physical spiritual and enjoy it, that's the word joy. That's where the word joy comes from. So the feast of the Jews at the end of the Megiddah, the feast of the Jews when the decree was given in Shushan, the capital, the feast expresses the possibility of salvation that has just become available to them and their thanks to God. As King David says, I will lift up a cup of salvation and call in Hashem's name, Tehilim 116, two separate feasts at two different times and in different places arranged by the Jews on the occasion of their salvation. Because we know that there's two Purims. 
right? It's Purim 1 and Purim 2. Purim 1 is on the 14th of Adar, which is when the Jews were victorious over the enemies over the rest of the kingdom. And on the 15th of Adar is when the Jews in Shushan, the capital city, they had to fight two days. They had so many enemies in the capital city. And they had to fight two days. And then they celebrate on the 15th of Adar. And as we do in Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh, we have Shushan, what's called Shushan Purim. The second Purim, we're going to celebrate in Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh. You want to join me, my festive meal. You're welcome to come. And Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh, Adar, uh, 15th of Adar. And uh, this Wednesday is going to be Purim in Yerushalayim. So Tuesday, everywhere else, Monday night, Tuesday, Yerushalayim is going to be Tuesday night, Wednesday, and Purim in Yerushalayim, nothing like it. There's nothing like Purim in Yerushalayim, Kodesh. The city goes crazy. Uh, you can't even go uh, anywhere in the streets. It's crowded with people carrying the Mishloch Manot. The kids are bugging you for money. <laughs> They're all dressed up. It's, it's wild. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. When I moved to Israel, I actually landed in Yerushalayim on Shushan Purim. It's like a madhouse. <laughs> Uh, a taxi took ages to drive through the streets. It, uh, it was a different world completely. I arrived in a different world. So I'm also celebrating my third year in Eretz Israel, Baruch Hashem, the end of my third year. And I'll never forget my anniversary is Shushan Purim. You can't get a happier day than that to celebrate the anniversary of being in Israel and being in Shushan, being in uh, Yerushalayim, Kodesh, and celebrate Shushan Purim. Okay. So the two the Jews celebrate two feasts one on the 14th of Adar, one on the 15th of Adar. And just like today, we do the same thing. So Jews outside the walled cities from the time of, of Joshua celebrate the 14th of Adar. The Jews in walled cities from the time of Joshua celebrate the 15th of Adar. That's Yushalayim, Mirah Kodesh. The final feast is the radio with complete no drinking. The feast of the Jews is the only feast in the beginner with no drinking. It's interesting. And in com- comparison to the previous feast, there's a sharp difference um, because the feasts in the Gentile king's palace were held without any mention of joy. There's no mention of simcha, of joy in the feasts of the king. However, the Jewish feasts are characterized by joy, by simcha. The word simcha is joy. And these terms are always juxtaposed. Joy and celebration for the Jews, feasting and holiday. Finally, we find that it's not just a physical phenomenon of eating and guzzling and drinking. It's a physical, spiritual phenomena, And that's what makes joy. That's something which we have to uh, internalize for the Ligida. The lesson of the Ligida is if a feast is just for the sake of the eating and the drinking, it's just a feast but no joy. But if you're eating and drinking to celebrate Hashem's victory, then it's a feast with joy. Make it spiritual, it's a joy. And they rested on the 14th day of Adar. I'm just quoting you from the Megillah, chapter 8, verse 17. Chapter 9, verse 17. And they made it a day of feasting and joy. So that's, again, it's feasting and joy, not just feasting and joy. And rested on the 15th thereof and made it a day of feasting and joy. Again, repeat it again. Feasting and joy goes together. The Jewish festivals are feasting. With joy. Why? Because they're spiritual. They're not just physical, they're spirit, physical and spiritual for the body and the soul. And again, on verse 9, 19, repeats, and 9, 22, it repeats, to make them days of feasting and joy and sending portions to another one, which is Mishloch Manot, and gifts to the poor, to two poor people, 
Uh, in contrast to all the previous feasts, which Achashverosh participates, joy is absent. In all his feasts, joy is absent. This discrepancy emphasizes inner psychological experience. While Achashverosh's feasts lead to drunken revelry, the Jewish feasts lead to mutual sending of food portions and gifts to the poor. It's a feast based on not the selfish, but the unselfish by helping others. So close inspection of the various feasts reveals that the Megillah attempts to create a fixed pattern of pairs. Sometimes the pairs are obvious and clearly visible, and other times the connection between them is only hinted at. Let's examine some of these pairs, starting with the obvious pairs. Number one, the most recognizable pair of parties are those that Esther arranges for the king in Hamad. Why two parties? This is very brilliant. Esther was brilliant. She was br- diplomat, brilliant par excellence. Esther was a brilliant woman. How do we know she was brilliant? She used psychological warfare in her quest to save the Jews. She wanted to get Ahasuerus really jealous against Haman. She wanted to use every while, every womanly while, to make sure that Ahasuerus would get really jealous and suspect something was going on between Esther and Haman. Now, this was a big risk to her, because Ahasuerus should not only kill Haman, she might, he might also kill her as well. So what does she do? She invites Ahasuerus Haman to a party. Now, if you're a husband, why is this strange guy coming to a party, a very intimate party with just you and your wife? And so that night, he says, the king couldn't sleep. It's interesting. That night, that is the night the king couldn't sleep. Why couldn't he sleep? Guess why he couldn't sleep? He says, Maybe they're plotting against me. Maybe there's something going on between these two. Very strange. Why is my wife that I gave so much to? I made a party. I I reduced the taxes. I gave her beautiful gifts. Why is she consorting with Haman, the the second most powerful person in the kingdom? Maybe there's a plot going on. Maybe there's a plot that I was saved for that I didn't reward someone for saving my life. Can you read my diary? They're reading his diary and then he comes. He's nodding off. And then he comes to the park. Big time and Teresh. He wanted to kill the king. He said, read that part again. Did I give Mordecai anything for saving my life? He said, no, you didn't. And guess who walks in? Just that minute. That, this is the amazing part of the Megillah where it says the king couldn't sleep that night. The rabbis say, the commentaries say, which king are we talking about? We're talking about the king of kings. Hashem wouldn't let the king sleep that night. Hashem is in charge of all the kings and all the princes, all the presidents. Their heads are in God's hands. Right? Hashem and will turn all their heads to good for all of us, always protect us and save us, and not plot against us. And uh, Hashem couldn't let the king sleep that night. And uh, Hashrosh wants to reward Mordecai, and who walks in straight away? Haman walks in that night to hang Mordecai in the tree. And the king tells Haman, I, ha- I want to reward someone. Uh, who saved my life, and Haman says, who does the king want to reward more than me? So he's thinking to himself, the king wants to reward me, of course he does. So the king says, what shall I do to him? He said, put him on the king's horse, dress him in the king's robes, and the king's uh, crown, and walk him through the cities of Shushan, and the king says, quickly, go and do that to Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) Oh dear. This is like the the funniest, the hardest part of the Megillah for a Jew hater to read, you know. Here's the anti-Semite par excellence, Haman, now he's the walk the Jew, make him wear his, uh, the, the clothes of uh, the king, and whatever he wanted for himself, he's going to do for Mordecai. This is like 
the hardest thing for him to do. He goes home and he's disheveled and he's uh, in a bad mood. And straight away after that, the pe- people come to drag him to the party with the queen. <laughs> the second party to the queen, he's in this bad mood. He didn't sleep that night. And he had to walk Mordecai through the streets of Shushan, the king's horse, the king's uh, clothes, commanded. And he's in such a bad mood. And he goes to his uh, Vashti, his wife, and she tells him, if you're falling, you're going to fall even more. That's it. The Jews go up and down. If they're going up, no one can stop them. If they're going down, okay, that's time to attack them. But when they're going up, they're going up. The clouds, the sky's the limit. So you're going to be finished, Haman. Imagine the wife telling the husband, that's it, Haman, your days are numbered. And he goes to the party, and sure enough, his days are numbered. So Esther was this brilliant woman who caused this jealousy of the king, and he's thinking about what's going on in his kingdom, who's plotting against him. Maybe there's a plot between Haman and my wife. And then, so he's sitting in the party, and they're drinking. Now, this time, the third, this second party, this estimate, she drinks with them, which is very, very strange. The first party, she never drank with them. She just serves them. This third party is much more intimate, and it seems like he got much more jealous until she says, someone wants to kill me. When she says, someone wants to kill me, he says, who, who? She points to Amman. And you know what? The king is very relieved. Why is he very relieved? He thought the plot was that they want to kill him. <laughs> so he just finds out, okay, he wants to kill her, not me. So what does he do? It says he leaves the party and goes into his garden to calm down. He's in a rage. But you know what it says? You can see he's relieved. And that's why he doesn't say to kill Haman straight away, which is interesting. Why? If someone wants to kill your wife, what do you do? Tell the guards, take him away, put him in jail at least. No. Goes outside to calm down. Why is he going to come? Listen, this is my theory. You can take it or leave it. You don't want it. You don't have to have it. But my theory is, he says, listen, this Haman is very, very important to me. Why? Because I can have my parties. He's running my kingdom for me. He's doing me a great favor. I gave him my ring. He's doing a good job. As far as I'm concerned, he's doing a good job. I get the taxes. I get the money. I get everything on time. I'm looked after very well. I can play around. And he's doing all the hard work. I don't lose it. He's going to kill my wife, but you know what? I'll, you know, I'll find a way to protect her and keep him at the same time. He's very handy. So then when he goes back in, what happens is it says that Haman was on the couch with Esther begging for his life. And uh, Ashrosh now is thinking that he wants to, she's a, he's attacking Esther in front of him, inside my very house. That's going too far. And then what happens is Harbona comes along and says, he wants to kill Mordechai. He's not just after your wife, he's to kill your wife. He wants to kill Mordechai, the Jew who saved your life. Ah, the king says, now I know he wants to kill me. Why? He wants to kill the guy who saved my life. He wants to kill me. Take him away straight up. (laughs) That's the story. It wasn't because he was worried about his wife getting killed. He was worried about Mordecai who saved his life getting killed. His only friend, his only true friend, the only one who saved his life is Mordecai. He doesn't want Mordecai to be killed. Take him away. That's the story. So these two parties are very, very important parties in the Megillah. Look out for them when you read the Megillah. Look out for these two parties, the parties of Esther, and see the differences between them and uh, the progress made between the two events. At first, the king and Haman came to the party that Esther made, but afterwards they come to drink. The second party, they come to drink with Esther. And the uh, first party, Esther feels she is not yet at the stage of drinking today, together with the, death, the guests. 
And they, for their part, also still treat her as the mistress of the house, the mistress of God. She was like a waitress, pouring drinks for the guests who have come to that purpose. And the second party, in contrast, she drinks in as well. She drinks with them. Now they drink as a group. She no longer faces a coalition of male drinkers. Now is the opportune time. She's one of them. She's one of the guys. Now she can plead for herself and her nation. Okay, it's interesting. These parties are very interesting. And another pair of parties is arranged by the Jews after their lives are saved and they avenge themselves on the enemies, making a day of feasting and joy in uh, chapters 8 and 9. These occur on the 14th of Adar, celebration by the Jews of the provinces, and the 15th of Adar, celebration by the Jews of Shushan. And a further pair are held in the wake of dispatch of the royal decrees. First, there is a party called Manah Hashverosh, according to the first decree, considering the annihilation of the Jews. And, it's, and it says, the king and Haman sat down to drink, and the city of Shushan was dismayed. Parallel to this party of the Jews, when the second decree was publicized, permitted to the, the Jews to band together and defend themselves, the Jews made a party. So there's different, there's pairs of party over here. But what we need to pay attention to is which parties is happiness associated with, and which parties are happiness not associated with. So if you bring God into the party, that's our job. We have to bring God into the world. If you bring God and spirituality into your party, there'll be parties of joy. There'll be parties of a mitzvah, parties of different Torah. When you have different Torah in a party, it changes the whole party to a party of a mitzvah. And that is a very important idea. One of the ideas of the Megillah is this idea of partying, not just for the sake of physical pleasure, but for the sake also of spiritual pleasure. And that brings true joy, true joy into a party. Okay, another one more point I want to make before we close off before Purim. And I wish everyone a, a fantastic Purim. But Rabbi Shem will be a Purim, which is celebrating joy on every situation. All the wars will end and no more troubles in Israel and around the world. But Rabbi Shem. I remember, I remember the Purim of uh, Saddam Hussein, <laughs> that war. Uh, we were all, you know, the missiles. We think Israel, there were 39 missiles that hit Israel. And they... The, 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 I remember seeing the pictures of my father-in-law and his family in sealed rooms. They were in gas masks. They thought, you know, he was threatening under the gas mask. And, uh, and, the, and the war was over on Purim Day. That was the, that was the war of the world. The war was over on Purim Day. All our troubles be over better on Purim Day. So I want to end off with this concept of forgetting and remembering. This week's parasha, we're going to read a special Torah portion called Zahor et Yom et Ma'asher Asah Lecham Remember what uh, what Amalek did to you. Remember what Amalek did to you. So there's a concept of a mitzvah to remember in the Torah. Every day in the Siddur, starting we say 10 remembrances. Ashkenazim say six remembrances. If you look at the end of Shacharit, you'll find in a regular city, you'll find remembrances. There are certain, there's a mitzvah to remember certain things. To remember the Shabbat, Torah says, remember Shabbat. It's a mitzvah to remember Shabbat every single day. Zachor, uh, Shabbat, Haman, to remember the manna that fell every day. We have to remember the manna that fell, that God has the power to give us our sustenance on a daily basis. Remember the manna. And one of the things we have to remember is Amalek. Zachor, remember what Amalek did to you. And then it says, don't forget. Remember and don't forget. Now, what's the difference between remembering and don't forget? Is that obvious? If you're remembering, you're not forgetting. If you're forgetting, then you're not remembering. So what is, why does it say twice? Remember and don't forget. 
So Haman is Amalek. We know the connection between Amalek and Haman. Haman was a direct descendant of Amalek. It says Haman Hagagi, he was a descendant of Agag. Agag was the king of Amalek under King Saul, who was killed by the prophet Samuel. Prophet Samuel kills Agag, but nevertheless, his maid was pregnant with a son, and Haman was a direct descendant of Agag. Haman was Amalek. And the book of Esther says, after these things, after Esther was coronated as queen, he remembers his wife, Vashti. So here we find this, this word, Zahor, is mentioned in the Megillah. So before Esther was coronated, he remembers his wife, Vashti. And then Mordechai saves his life. I'm not going in any chronological order. I'm just putting out these, these words. The key words, Zahor, he remembers Vashti and what happened to her. And he was very depressed, by the way. And then when it says Mordechai saves the king's life, it says the king forgets this. So remembrance and forgetting. And then chapter six, it says the king cannot sleep. We talked about. And he says, bring me my diary. Now the word for diary in, in the Megillah is very interesting. It says, Sefer Hazichronot. The book of remembrances. Bring, bring, bring me my book of remembrances. I want to help myself remember something very important. Everything in a diary is, is amazing. It's, I think it's a much better term for a diary. The book of remembrance is a much better term for a diary because it's really about remembering things like you have the pictures, you keep on your pictures, your videos. These are your remembrances. They're Sefer of Zichbonot. And they brought before the king the book of remembrances. When the king hears how Mordechai saved his life, he remembers. But, if he, but he forgot. <laughs> That's what it says. He remembers the king sa- that Mordechai saved his life. But he forgot if he rewarded Mordechai. So there's remembrance and forgetfulness. <coughs> Number seven, it says Esther tries to forget her origins. And because Mordechai first told her, don't mention about your origins at all. It takes an emergency and Mordechai's prodding to remind her who she is. To remind her, there's a horror to remember who she is. To push her to action. Esther's greatness, her emergence at the most significant figure in the Purim story, only occurs when she forgets the dangers involved in petitioning the king and remembers who she is. So we find this, this common theme of forgetfulness and remembering. So forget what's not important in our lives. Sometimes we bear grudges against people. Sometimes remember things which are inconsequential. You know, I was walking down the street today i just tell you, this is a sorry, silly story. Walking down the street today, and there was a woman pushing a carriage behind me. And I was walking and I'm trying to, you know, pace myself. And she, now listen to this. Now she walks and overtakes me and walks right in front of me to go into a building. So I go, what's going on? She could have just walked behind me and walked into the building. Why does she have to walk around me to go into the building? So I said, you know what? This is so inconsequential. This should be my kapara today. This should be the worst thing that happens to me today. Hashem, thank you so much. I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to even think about it. It's inconsequential. So that's what we we need to use forgetfulness for. We need to be forgetful in uh, what happens between us and our spouses. It's hard to forget. Hard to forget. We have to forget. We have to forget some things our children do for us. Whatever it is, we're going to be big on forgetting. That's being large. Forget all these inconsequential, and remember the things which are important. So Esther forgot all her troubles, she forgot all her dangers, 
And she said, I remember I'm a Jew. I remember now I have a mission. We have to remember that we Jews have missions in this world. All of us have a mission. And our mission is to make this world a better place, to make our families stronger, to make our communities stronger. As Radha Shem will be successful. And, and we'll, we'll see this beautiful Purim that Radha Shem will have together. So everyone, enjoy. And next week, we'll talk with Radha Shem about the Mishkan, about the temple. What is so important about the temple? What is so important about giving Sadaqah? Because that's what they have to give. They have to give uh, presence to the temple to build the Mishkan in the desert. We'll talk about it next week. That's Radha Shem. Enjoy. Happy first Shabbat Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.